Uh, we're really excited today to have a few speakers on a panel to talk about accessible medical equipment, and specifically we'll use the term durable medical equipment. This was an issue we talked about last year as an imperative um, for 2019. And in the national office, we've done a lot of work on it. We're looking at it from all different angles, from a legal angle, a regulatory angle, a legislative angle. It's not an imperative this year, unfortunately, in 2020, because we're still trying to wrap our arms fully around it but we are still totally dedicated to it because we know it's an extremely important topic in our community um, initially looking at it for the diabetic community but onward and upward we're definitely seeing more and more medical equipment out there so we have um, we should have three panelists awesome they're all here um, we have Matt Handley, Caitlin Banner, and Stephanie Willis, who are all going to talk about it. Um, Caitlin is from the Washington Lawyers Committee, so again, our great allies there. Stephanie Willis comes from a more regulatory background um, from a different law firm, and Matt Handley, who has been an ally um, with ACB for a long time, who's been looking at it from the legislative perspective. So um, without further ado, I'll turn it over to them, and they can each um, spend some time talking about the perspective they've been able to bring to the issue. Good afternoon, everyone. I think some of you might remember me from last year. I am from the law firm of Curl and Mooring. Um, can everybody hear me? Hello? All right. I'm going to have to eat the microphone. <laughs> so um, again, my name is Stephanie Willis. I'm from the law firm of Curl and Mooring. I saw I was here last year with many of you, um, and we're still working hard on this issue. And I really thank. Claire, Clark, and Eric for continuing to keep us um, as part of your advocacy team. And I know that many of you have been advocating for your own um, access to these durable medical equipment uh, pieces in order to get access to what everybody else gets, their healthcare. So the problem, okay. <laughs> Maybe I'm eating a little too, <laughs> hello? Maybe there's feedback. I'm gonna move my phone. Let's move our phones. <laughs> All right, back online. <laughs> so the problem that we were asked to assist with, um, along with the Washington Lawyers Committee, was to how to focus the federal agency's attention on the inaccessibility of medical devices to those with visual impairments and how unfair it is to place the burden on those consumers to make, device, to make devices that are critical to the management of their chronic diseases usable. So just to give you an overview, I think, I, I didn't want to go in, we, we don't have a lot of time, so I'm just going to give you an overview of the regulatory framework. Um, the FDA approves devices for use and sale to the public under the authority of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and then C CMS issues coverage and reimbursement regulations, manuals, and policies that govern how the federal government will pay for devices furnished to Medicare beneficiaries. I focus on Medicare beneficiaries only because a lot of the commercial payers will take um, the lead from Medicare. So if Medicare takes a stance on the accessibility of, medic of durable medical equipment, the commercial payers will soon follow. 
Um, so we really use Medicare as a proxy because obviously a lot of um, manufacturers count Medicare beneficiaries as 20 to 25% of their market, and that's a huge thing for them. Um, there are regulations governing administration avenues for enforcing compliance with civil rights laws, such as the ADA, the Rehabilitation Act. I'm not going to lecture you on those because th those are part of your day-to-day -day, um, you know, lives. Um, the HHS Office of Civil Rights is the agency that I'm, that I'm most working, working most closely with um, that has jurisdiction over the enforcement of these anti-discrimination laws for HHS programs like Medicare, Medicaid, et cetera. But unfortunately, this administration is more focused on addressing conduct that potentially constitutes religious discrimination in comparison to discrimination against other protected classes, um, including those with disabilities. So that's been the, you know, the most disappointing um, part of this at this time. Um, but just as an update on the efforts that we have had, um, efforts we have engaged in with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, that's the agency that administers the Medicare benefit, um, we focused on them first because, again, if Medicare decides something, then the commercial payers tend to follow. So um, we wanted to make sure that this was something that was front and center for that agency in terms of changing policy with respect to accessibility of durable medical equipment. So the overall goal of our engagement with that agency was to encourage a regulatory mandate that all devices be accessible to those with disabilities in order to be covered by Medicare or Medicaid. So if you come with a device and say, hey, we want this to be reimbursable by the Medicare program. We wanted there to be a mandate in regulation that said that these devices must be accessible in order to obtain coverage or else you can't be, you, you, we can't recommend it to Medicare or Medicaid patients. And that's a big market um, share for uh, these manufacturers and they would never want to lose that market. So we thought that that would be a good incentive driver or you know, a driver to um, push accessibility forward with respect to devices like CGMs and um, ESRD support equipment. So last year, last summer, we met with representatives of the Office of the Administrator and the clinical um, standards and quality um, folks at CMS. And you know, we focused our dis discussion on CGMs due to past regulatory activity related to, um, there was a previous ban on the use of smartphones <laughs> in conjunction with CGMs that was lifted at that time. And it was a perfect opportunity to raise the issue to CMS that, hey, it's great that you're allowing smartphones to be used with these devices, but really you know, the smartphones, at least for the visually impaired community, was, were important to just being able to use a device and we need to incorporate accessibility as part of the design of these products rather than forcing people to use workarounds that might actually not be helpful um, in the end because when a smartphone talks to a device that is created by a different manufacturer, you're, you might be missing data. You might have data that is misinterpreted. And that is a quality of care and a patient safety issue. So that's the standpoint that we approach them with. And they were very receptive to that. And um, our meetings resulted in us drafting a letter for CMS to s consider sending to device manufacturers signaling the agency's awareness of the accessibility problem. So we drafted that um, notice that we, you know, and we worked in conjunction with ACB and the Washington Lawyers Committee to draft that notice and it went to CMS last fall. Um, we've you know, continued to maintain contact with the agency but we have not received follow-up um, from the agency. There's a lot going on at the agency right now and we'll continue to press forward but unfortunately the regulatory process can be very frustrating at times. So this is why the Hill <laughs> activities that you are engaging in 
are very important because if you are engaging the Hill, the Hill can sometimes apply additional pressure to the agencies to address this issue. Because um, if the agency is making the excuse that, oh, we can't approach this because there's, a, there's no law that really supports us doing this, the Congress can say, okay, well, work with us to make that law happen. So we need a multi-front attack on this issue. And you know, so we're really privileged to be working with you all um, who already have a framework to make that happen. Um, and one other thing to put on your radar, CMS and, and the, another agency, the Office of the Inspector General, the, um, the OIG, the OIG um, uh, mainly oversees program integrity to make sure that people aren't fraudulently using um, Medicare program. So one avenue that we had spoken to, spoken about with CMS was that um, often, you know, rather than incorporating accessibility into the design of products, maybe manufacturers would be more willing to donate some of these um, smartphones or other adjunctive um, you know, aids that they can populate with, you know, proprietary software in order to assist individuals with visual impairments to use the devices as they're intended. That is not a permanent solution, but is something that is a short-term workaround that you know, would be helpful to individuals who don't have the financial means to, um, you know, buy a, a smartphone to access these um, devices. And um, so, as it happens, the OIG and CMS are considering updating rules right now that would make the donation of those smartphones, smartwatches, et cetera, that could help make these devices accessible to the community more um, more permissible under the laws. Um, many manufacturers are supportive of these rules because they want to donate things and make themselves look good in front of populations. So um, we are closely monitoring the progress of those rules. I am not anticipating those to be released until the fall. But um, as drafted right now, they would be able to, use, to donate free or low-cost smartphone devices that could be populated with this type of software to support the use of CGMs and other devices for you know, specific populations such as um, uh, uh, individuals with um, visual impairments. So more to come on that, but that's a more recent development that you know, we're following very closely. Um, and one last thing before I turn it over to my other co-panelists. The Food and Drug Administration, um, like I said, they review the you know, safety and clinical data related to the devices and approve them for use and, and sale to the public. Um, so right now, our overall goal is to encourage a regulatory mandate that all manufacturers incorporate accessibility features into the design of new devices or upgrades to existing ones prior to FDA approval. And if they don't incorporate those accessibility um, features, they would have to justify to the agency directly why they haven't done so, and that would be you know, sort of a disincentive to them um, not doing so. So obviously a little weaker of a mandate that we're going to with the FDA, but that is because the, their, the, the pathway between the anti-discrimination laws with respect to individuals with disabilities isn't um, as clear with the FDA as it is with CMS. Um, other ideas, um, I know that the Hill is deeply, you know, is in the nascent stages of considering uh, the 21st Century Cures Act 2.0. Um, so that's Diana DeGette, and I think she's part of the Di Diabetes Caucus, right? Um, it's kind of been quiet now, but um, they issued an RFI for ideas on the issue earlier, um, well, I'm sorry, earlier in the fall. Um, but obviously those 
that could take one to two years to actually um, result in a bill. So we're following those efforts as well. And as I said before, pushing on the Hill to maybe incorporate some stronger mandates with respect to the ADA Re Rehabilitation Act of 1973 um, and pushing the agencies to, you know, to ask to find ways to strengthen um, disability, you know, disability related protections with respect to medical devices. Um, the 21st Century Cures Act might offer that opportunity to do so as well. So if, as we hear anything from the Hill, we'll update the ACB on whether there's opportunities in the future. There's none right now. Um, if there's opportunities in the future to push forward um, this type of mandate or legis um, legislation that's part of 21st Century Cures 2.0. So um, thank you very much. And I see a question in the back, but I, I don't want to run over other people's time. And I'll we'll make sure that question gets answered. Um, uh, and if we don't have time to address any questions to my piece here today, please feel free to reach out to Clark and Claire and they can send questions to me and I can answer them. So thank you very much again for the opportunity and I hope that this regulatory update was helpful to you all. Please hold your questions and we'll try to see if we have any time after all three panelists speak. Okay. Um, hi, uh, good afternoon everyone. This is uh, Matthew Handley and it's a real pleasure to, to be back amongst you all um, again. And normally I like speaking here because I, I, I love talking about like the good news that's happened over the last year um, and the successes that we've had and um, unfortunately Claire and, and Clark and Eric asked me back to, to be a little bit more sobering on this one and to, to really highlight the need for why um, an additional legislative solution is, is necessary for many of the same reasons that Stephanie just said and I thought that it might be helpful if I put it into context of of the obstacles that I have faced as I have tried to analyze this issue for ACB and its members and to figure out is there some sort of enforcement mechanism by which we could make medical devices accessible. And so taking, you know, one, taking a step back, as, as a lawyer who you know, tends to represent people who have been victims of wrongs, we like to think that every wrong has a remedy. And so we take it from that, that's, that's sort of our, our jumping off point is, okay, here's a wrong, now what is the, what law provides us the right remedy for that? And, um, you know, over the last 50 years, accessibility laws have grown and been passed in such ways that there are many, many, many aspects of our daily lives that are covered by um, now existing accessibility laws. We have Title III of the ADA that will affect places of public accommodation. We have the Communications and Video Accessibility Act that will cover certain types of devices, devices that communicate with each other. Um, we have other titles of the ADA that, that protect our places of employment or that protect um, uh, our government services. We have the Fair Housing Act amendments that protect protect us from, uh, that provide accessibility or guarantee it when we're in our homes. But there is still very much a gap when it comes to the accessibility of things. And medical devices um, are in many ways things. And it, it is, there is not a necessarily a clear enforcement mechanism as it exists right now that would require um, manufacturers of these devices, for instance, the continuous reading glucose meters, to necessarily make those things accessible without other, ty without other types of sticks, 
or carrots involved in the law. At least that's my opinion. The, um, you know, there, there are certainly, um, there are certainly things that one can do that would encourage them to be accessible. For instance, the market for them is huge. The fact that um, diabetes is one of the largest, if not the largest, causes of blindness would uh, would make you think that a manufacturer of a glucose meter would want to make them accessible. But that doesn't necessarily seem to be enough to force them um, to make them accessible without some other additional push. Um, and I, in some ways, I fear that if we try to shoehorn um, the requirements that currently exist under the law into making uh, medical devices accessible, it might prompt our legislatures to, legislatures to not act. Um, and, the, and as an example of that, I, I give sort of the, the lack of regs that we still do not have when it comes to website accessibility. We were, you know, we, we were promised for years that the Department of Justice would eventually promulgate regulations that would um, codify, so to speak, what exactly it means for websites um, to be accessible. However, that kept getting punted and kept getting punted. And one of the reasons I think it kept getting punted is that they pointed to a sufficient number of successes by lawyers in cases that were able to um, apply things like Title III of the ADA to websites. And so, therefore, there weren't really, it wasn't really necessary to promulgate additional regulations to make, to, to ensure that that uh, we know exactly what it means for a website to be accessible and what it meant for it not to be, or what it meant for it to be usable or not to be usable. And so I think um, even though we could certainly try various avenues for enforcement on some of these uh, inaccessible medical devices by making administrative complaints, by possibly going after employers who use these medical devices by saying you're as an employer you're not using an accessible device for your employees by potentially going after like a false claims act claim against the um, against the manufacturers who are selling them to government contractors and are not making them accessible but I think all of those are going to be very in, very insufficient compared to a legislative fix that um, you know, that that Stephanie alludes to also and um, you know, I've certainly reviewed the the proposed legislation that ACB has propounded, and and you know, there are others out there too. And I think it's sort of incumbent on all of us to make sure that um, that our representatives know that accessibility of medical devices is 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 a gap in the in the law right now, and one that needs to be filled. Hi, everyone. This is Caitlin Banner from the Washington Lawyers Committee. I have the very um, great privilege of going last, which means I don't have a lot to add to what my colleagues have said, and I get to turn it over for questions in just a minute. Um, but everything, sort of everything that both Stephanie and Matt have shared today, I agree with and I, I support. You know, this is an area of the law that there are not really great legal solutions or cases that we see are going to move this issue forward. And so really concentrating on the legislative and the regulatory changes, I think, are going to provide us with the most comprehensive solution 
to really get manufacturers thinking about how to have out-of-the-box accessibility. So not these workarounds, not being dependent on others, but really designing um, designing their products with a universal design so that they are accessible right away. Um, one thing that I will say before I turn it over for questions, because I know already that there are some in the audience, um, is one that this is a problem that a lot of people are not thinking about. So having gone to some of these meetings, um, as, as you have with legislators, with folks um, in the regulatory agencies, um, a lot of times it's education is going to be the way to change people's minds because folks have not sat down and thought about what it means for these devices to have um, to be screen-based and what that means for people who are blind or who have low vision. And so that's something that, um, that you all can continue to do to share your stories um, with Claire and Clark, to share your stories with your representatives, to explain the types of workarounds that you need, um, that you or your communities need to engage in in order to make these devices workable and, and, and to share with the people who are making decisions so that they know that this is a priority and that this is a real problem that they need to solve. Um, and then second... Um, is that uh, continuing to think about, and um, we're continuing to explore, and, and maybe we'll be here next year with a different update, but continuing to explore what are the legal options. We know that the legislative and the regulatory um, areas can be really hard, and so we are continuing to think about different legal theories or how to put pressure on these manufacturers to understand um, that they have an obligation and they need to um, think about how to make these products accessible. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to questions. I'm happy to mic run or if somebody else is available to do so. Great. Thank you so much. We have about 10 minutes for questions. Um, do we have a mic runner out there? Yeah. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, good afternoon. It's uh, Chris Gray from uh, Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, I'm glad all three of you are up there and I, I hear a lot of what you're saying. Um, I appreciate all the work that's been done. I've been part of the sort of di diabetes task force that's met many times over the last year. <clears throat> and um, while I appreciate the difficulties I think we have to do even more to find some solutions to move us forward. Um, ACB has worked on this issue off and on since 2002, and we've gotten absolutely nowhere. We really spent a lot of effort this last year working on it, and we're still nowhere. Now, I know uh, it, it's a tough issue. And we don't have the Telecommunications Act to fall back on and so forth. Um, but I tend to believe that tremendous progress has been made in website accessibility. And whether or not that has impeded regulation uh, is, is speculative. It may be true. But the reality is that website accessibility is far more a reality today by pushing the envelope uh, with the ADA. And I think that we just have to do something in that arena to move this in some way. We're, we're not moving it now, and I would hate to come back in a year and still be where we are today. Now, if the approach is that we get some legislation written and try and get it introduced or try and get it sponsored, 
That's fine. It's an approach. But we have got to have an approach. I, I, I'm not, Mr. Gray, I want to make sure that I respond to your, to your um, concern. I, I, too, am frustrated by this. This is not something that, you know, I went into health law to do more of this type of work. And I think that, um, unfortunately, a lot of this is due to the change in administrations since 2002. I think that between 2002 and now, we've had a lot of receptive administrations and administrations who are, and who put people, put judges on the bench who were amenable to uh, making decisions in favorable of, um, that, that, that were favorable to the rights of um, individuals with um, visual impairments, physical impairments. And now um, the, the anti-discrimination environment has been shifted to other items and, unfor and unfortunately with respect to a lot of the judicia judicial appointments, things have um, shifted in a different direction than I anticipated as, a, you know, as, as, as being in this law, uh, area of law for you know, about 10 years now. So I agree with you, pushing on the legislative front is really important at this point. It, um, the bill that you have, um, that ACB has developed is a, the right step in the right direction and we'll continue to, con to apply pressure on the regulatory side and, um, and I know that Matt, uh, Mr. Handley and Caitlin are really looking at um, other legal avenues as well. And um, just as a commentary on the website issue, um, I, when I was at the OIG before it going into private practice, we enforced Section 508 of the, um, you know, Section 508 which related to um, accessibility of websites. And when I was there, there was a lot more accountability with respect to that. And even my colleagues who are at OIG now, Section 508, um, uh, actions have gone down significantly. So um, unfortunately, the website issues, even though there have been improvements, um, there's less action in that regard. So um, anything, you know, I think, again, reinvigorating that approach um, is probably a good idea as well. Sorry, that was a long answer. <laughs> so and this is Clark from the National Office. Chris, thank you, as well as Jeff Bishop, Tom Tobin, uh, for working with Claire and me. Um, helping us think through this issue. Um, that, that's been really helpful for us. Uh, we did submit comments to representatives Upton and DeGette uh, back in December as they were seeking recommendations for Cures uh, 2.0. Um, the, again, the reason that this issue is not is not a legislative imperative for us this year. It's not because it's not important. It's just currently we do not see a legislative path forward in this election year. Um, again, with six months, roughly six months before everything in DC switches to campaign mode. So this is still an issue that we will work to educate members of Congress on. Um, like Stephanie said, the, the Cures 2.0 process will take time and we will certainly be engaged in that process. We will also keep continuing to push those regulatory channels, as well as raise this issue with our corporate partners um, who may be able to lean on device manufacturers as well. We've got time for one or two more questions here. Yeah, this is Chris Bell. Um, going to Chris Gray's comment, 
It seems to me that if we're really going to make change with regard to the accessibility of available technology for consumers, whether it be medical or home-based or exercise, whatever it is, we're going to have to have the kinds of grassroots work that happened with the Americans with Disabilities Act, with a person like Justin Dart that went to all 50 states and uh, got testimony from people with disabilities and Major Owens in the House that supported those efforts. Um, without this kind of grassroots swell of, of uh, intentionality to make our world more accessible, I don't think you're going to see legislation. And that grassroots effort is going to take a long time and will take a lot of effort. But unless we're thinking along those lines, I don't think you're going to see the kinds of accessibility to technology and, uh, you know, autonomous vehicles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, without that kind of work. Could, could I, this is Matt. Could I, if I could follow on that and Chris's question, too. Um, and, and, Chris, I know you and I have spoken about this at length, too, and I don't want to overlook it, in that I, I think that one of the issues related to one of the barriers to enforcement under the current law, or at least attempts to do so, is I think that this smartphone tethering issue has masked the problem. Like, I think it is, I think to the, to a casual observer or even a casual legislator, to the extent that such thing exists, is that, that oh, well, the problem's solved. We've, we've got We've, you know, we, we have a means by which to make these devices accessible. And um, I know from talking to, uh, to many of you all in here that it's an extremely imperfect um, solution. Um, but I think more so, I think in order to bring enforcement, what we would really need, and, and, and I think it would be helpful to, for all of you to be able to tell us stories of people who do not have smartphones yet, um, use glucose readers, and those are the people who I think we could probably pioneer, uh, you know, an enforcement action with. And just, uh, hello, and just to uh, add on to Matt's comment, that's very true, and I think that um, the regulatory um, changes that are afoot um, will help us to be able to do that because if they finalize those regulations and they allow for more donations of those smartphones. Think of the data that we could point to showing that a lot, of the, a lot of these people who didn't have access to a smartphone couldn't even access their devices because of a, a, true, uh, you know, a, a, tr a true need. You know, it's not a convenience factor. This is a, 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 something that should be mandated as part of coverage under Medicare. And um, so I think, I mean, the, I can tell you that the support for that portion of the rules has been overwhelmingly in support, uh, you know, positive. So I think that you know, the donation of limited-use smartphones to support these, um, these tethering, <laughs> the tethering to devices will help move the ball forward, even though it's an imperfect solution, but it will allow us to have data that says, look, the fact that manufacturers have to donate these devices and do all of these things to make these items accessible to individuals who need them just to, you know, for basic usability purposes um, will and um, fuel to the fire that, you know, we need to incorporate accessibility by design. And I, I completely agree that smartphone tethering has masked the problem. 
So Stephanie, Caitlin, and Matt, thank you so much for your time with us here today. Well, folks, I, you know, we, we wish that we've had more progress on this issue as well. Uh, we will continue to work on it, and we will continue to work with all of you on it.